You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on June 10th, 2018. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. All of us have family stories. And one of the 
most interesting stories I find when I talk to people is learning about where families come from. So think about it for a moment. Where did your family come from? How did you end up in Florida? How did you end up in the United States? Where are your people from? That's what they ask in South Carolina. Where are your people from? My family is Norwegian and Irish and German. But our name, Klukas, comes from the German part of the family. And the Klukases were from a small town, uh, but when you look at their immigration documents, uh, the town name stays the same, but sometimes it's listed as Russia, and sometimes it's listed as Poland. And ultimately, I was always told growing up that we were German. So which of those is it? I'm not quite sure. But they came uh, in 1906, and they settled in Hartford, Connecticut, which was known as the hardware city. It's still the the, uh, headquarters of Stanley Tools, and now Black & Decker as well. But there were lots and lots of tool and die shops, and that's the industry uh, my great-grandfather came into because his people from the old country, whether that was Russia or Germany or Poland, we don't know, um, they were hardware people. And so lots of immigrants were coming from, from these particular towns to Hartford, Connecticut, because of this hardware reputation. And so my great-grandfather Martin, as I said, immigrated in 1906. But our name back then was not Klukas. Our name was, on the immigration documents, Klukaszewski. And in all of the ways that he wrote his name after that, it was Klukaszewski. Again, not quite sure which one is right. Um, But he was shortened it to Klukas when he became a citizen in 1943, so that it would be easier to pronounce, and my father says, so that it would sound less Polish. So I guess he was trying to distance himself from our our Polish roots. And they attended a German-speaking Lutheran church. But if you trace our family history back far enough, you'll find that we all share, you and I together, a common ancestor in Noah, and before him, in Adam. And so the story we read today as our Old Testament passage is part of our family history, our family history together, the history of the whole human race, all of humanity. According to Augustine, or Augustine, again, you can pronounce his name a couple different ways, before the fall of Adam and Eve, we were able to sin and able not to sin. Before the fall, we were able to sin and able not to sin. We were able to choose one way or the other, whether we would follow God or follow in another way. And we see goodness throughout all the pages of chapter 1 and chapter 2. But then, at the beginning of chapter 3, where we picked up today, something changes and things start to turn sour. And we begin with this serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was more crafty. That word is not a good word. It has two different connotations in Old Testament usage. One is positive and one is negative, but this is the more negative use of the word. It means cunning, 
It means uh, manipulative, crafty. It has a, a similarity to wise, but it's wisdom used for deception, not wisdom used for making wise or for good. So this serpent is crafty and shrewd and cunning. And the serpent here is a depiction of Satan. Satan in a bodily form, the form of a serpent. Now, Satan's family history is a little bit sketchy too. We see little outlines, but we never get the the whole story. And so we have to figure out where this being comes from, from little bits that we've picked up throughout the pages of Scripture. And so one thing that we know is that Satan was part of the heavenly host. He was part of God's company. But at some point, he chose to turn away from God. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 14 uh, that's really speaking about the king of Babylon, but may be an allusion to the fall of Satan. This is the, the one verse where we see the word Lucifer, if you've ever heard Lucifer as a name for Satan. But we know that he rebelled against God, and he took about a third of the angels with him. We see that in Revelations chapter 12. And his goal is to put himself in the place of God by drawing people away from God and getting them to worship him instead. And one of the easiest places to see that, we see that in a number of different places, but one of the easiest places to see that is in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where Satan meets Jesus out in the wilderness And he tempts him in three ways. But the one I want to highlight right now is the second temptation. It says, chapter 4, verse 9. I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verse 4. 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here, Satan is trying to tempt even God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, away from the love of the Father. Now, what we see here is more deception, and that's another characteristic feature of Satan. He's a deceiver. Lies are one of his favorite tools. And we see that here because, first of all, why would Jesus worship Satan? That's kind of backwards, isn't it? He's being twisty here. And this notion that all the kingdoms of the world have been given to Satan with all this authority and glory. That's not exactly true either. Satan has tried to usurp the authority. He's tried to usurp the glory. But it doesn't really belong to him. It belongs to God. And Satan has been trying to misdirect people's worship, misdirect glory away from God and onto himself from the beginning of time, or at least from the beginning of his fall from grace. So, we go back to the first or the third chapter of Genesis. We see this crafty serpent and we see more lies. 
He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course that's not what God said. God didn't actually say that. God didn't actually say anything like that. God said you can eat of any tree in this garden, any tree at all, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree. And he gives them a warning, lest you die. You can eat of any tree in the garden, except for one tree. I've given you all of these good things, everything you could possibly want. Think about all the good things that grow on trees. You get almonds, you get pomegranates, apples, oranges, bananas. There's a lot of good stuff that grows on trees. They have everything that they could possibly want. Every green plant I have given you for food, is what God said. And Satan has the boldness to say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman corrects him, but even here, she's starting to get twisted because her response isn't like God's either. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't actually say anything about touching it. So Eve is starting to be deceived by Satan. She's starting to twist God's words. She's starting to hear something other than the truth. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's proposing an alternate version of the truth to her. And notice that the most dangerous lie is not an outright bold-faced lie, but a half-truth. When you mix deception in with reality, that's where it's, that's where it's no good. Because it's, it's even more deceiving. When you mix truth with lie, it's even more deceiving because you can see the little bits of truth in it. And that blinds you to the lie that's there as well. And so that's what he's doing. He's mixing truth with lies and trying to blind Adam and Eve to what he's trying to accomplish. And notice that the thing that he tempts Adam and Eve with is his own temptation. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to take God's glory and give it to himself. He wasn't content to be a created being. He wanted to be in the place of God. And so he tempts Eve by saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is it about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is it all about? What's so bad about knowing good and evil? That seems like a good thing, right? You eat this and you know good and evil, so you'd then be able to discern what's evil and what's good, and you'd be able to make better choices, right? But that's not what it's about. It's about taking the place of God. J.I. Packer, who's a, a, one of the, the best evangelical theologians of the, the last century, 
Uh, he's still alive, and he's an Anglican. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and he's had a wonderful uh, influence on our prayer book uh, and on the ESV version of the Bible. Uh, but he says in one of his books, it would seem that the tree bore this name because the issue was whether Adam would let God tell him what was good and bad for him or whether he would seek to decide it for himself. In disregard of what God had said. By eating from this tree, Adam would, in effect, be claiming that he could know and decide what was good and evil for him without any reference to God. So this isn't so much about knowing objectively what is objectively good and what is objectively evil. It's about deciding for ourselves what is good and what is evil. Making our own reality, making our own version of the truth, putting ourselves in the place of God, just like Satan put himself in the place of God. And so what's the result of this? Immediately, when Eve eats the fruit, when Adam eats the fruit, things change. There's a sudden, stark difference in their lives. And immediately, they have an urge to clothe themselves. And so they go and find fig leaves and they sew them together to make garments for themselves and they hide when God comes walking through the garden. They try to hide from God. Before eating of the fruit, the man and the woman were naked and the Bible says that they were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. But after eating, they both feel compelled to cover up and hide. Now they have something to be ashamed of. And we see that in ourselves today. You can see this in a two-year-old. When a two-year-old does something wrong, they don't come and tell you about it. They go and hide somewhere. And you have to go find them. And as adults, we do the same thing. We do something wrong and we hide it. Except we don't usually go, uh, sometimes we go hide physically. But usually we hide with other deceptions. We put a, a cloud over. We conceal with lies. We conceal with paperwork. We conceal with our houses. We conceal the things that we do, and the things that we do that are wrong, we do in secret, because we don't want to be exposed. This is the same thing that Adam and Eve were doing when they tried to cover themselves up with these fig leaves. Ironically, fig leaves have a lot of holes in them, and they don't make the best covering, just so you know. So what does this all mean for us? This is our family origin story. What has been handed down to us? How do our lives change because of what happened thousands of years ago with our first parents, Adam and Eve? Well, for that, let's look at Romans. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all, men, because all sinned. So we see that there is a, a direct result between Adam's sin and our own sinfulness. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. That was part of the curse. We read about the curses today, both the curse for the woman and the curse for the man. But part of that curse is sin and sickness and death, as well as work and toil and pain. 
These are things that didn't exist before the fall. Thorns, too, for you gardeners. If you've ever pricked yourself trying to pull out thorny weeds, that's part of the fall, too. These things didn't exist before the fall, but chief among them was death. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this isn't saying that all have committed actual sins. We see that in the Bible. We see that even in the book of Romans. But that's not what this particular verse is saying. This verse is saying that all of us sinned in that first sin of Adam. Because Adam stood as our representative. He was our first human. He was the one who represented all of humanity. And in his sin, he sinned, and he changed the course of the whole human race. And so from that moment, all humans, everyone who comes from the line of Adam, which is everyone, is turned away from God by their natural inclination, from birth. Whether they've committed actual sins or not, they're turned away from God from birth. And this is what we mean by original sin. All sinned in Adam's sin because he was our representative. And just like I have inherited the name Klukas because one of my relatives a long time ago decided to change our family name from Klukaszewski or Klukaszewski or whatever it was, so also we had Adam as our representative and he changed our family history. He changed our identity. He changed our very disposition towards God through his one sin and brought death to all of us. We have inherited mortality from Adam, and death is a consequence of sin. And so it stands to reason that we have also inherited the sin of Adam along with his mortality. All of us are eventually going to die. We think of that as a fact of life. It is a fact of life. All of us unless Jesus comes first, are going to find ourselves dead. And so people sometimes try to say, well, death is natural. But it's not natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is here because of sin. And all of us are mortal. All of us will face death because of Adam's sin. But there's more. We continue to feel the effects of the fall today, not just in the fact that we'll die, but in the fact that we're all bent towards sin, just like Adam is. In Romans chapter 7, a couple chapters later, uh, Paul has these, these famous words, which I think all of us can take to heart. Romans seven eighteen and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever found yourself trapped in sin like that? You know what's right and you know what's wrong. You know what you should be doing and you know what you shouldn't be doing, and yet you keep doing the thing that you shouldn't be doing even though you know better, even though you want to do better. You just can't help yourself but to go in the way of the flesh to go in the way of the sin. You can't help yourself. And this is the plight of original sin. 
We've inherited that, that bent nature, that sin nature, from our first parent, Adam. Because of original sin, as it says in the 39 Articles, man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. We see that also in Paul's writings. This, uh, this contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. We see that in Galatians. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And when you see flesh there, don't think about your body because your body isn't evil. We're talking about our sin nature, original sin, our, our bentness away from God and towards sin. But this doesn't seem fair, does it? Right? It's not fair that we would be dealing with the consequences of something that we didn't do. As if we're paying for the credit card debt of the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather you never met. That wouldn't seem fair, would it? But think also of hereditary diseases. Think of the national debt. I didn't rack up the national debt, but I'm going to pay for it. And my children are going to pay even more for it. Think about the cycle of abuse, where one person is abused and they grow up to be an abuser, and that person then grows up to be an abuser, who grows up to be an abuser, who grows up to be an abuser. You've seen this in, in families you know. It's terrible. It's shameful. It isn't fair. But it's true. The president and other elected officials represent us to countries around the world. The things they do and say when they meet with representatives from other countries have major ramifications for all of us. But I guarantee you, I haven't been advising President Trump on what he should say when he meets with Kim Jong-un on June 12th. And yet, that could have major effects on me and on you even though none of us had anything to do with it. This is a reality we all deal with, where a representational head does and says things that have consequences for all of us. And that's what happened in Adam. Our representational head sinned. And since then, all of us have been turned away from God. All of us have been bent towards sin. It's part of our very nature. Hacker again says, it may be fairly claimed that the fall narrative gives the only convincing explanation of the perversity of human nature that the world has ever seen. It doesn't necessarily completely line up in our heads. It doesn't necessarily seem fair, but I challenge you to explain evil in any other way. I challenge you to explain the reality of sin in your life in any other way than the fact that we are turned away from God from birth. So that's my cheerful message for you this morning. (laughs) Thankfully, though, the amen doesn't come right there, because there's more. Right from the very third chapter of Genesis, right in the very third chapter of Genesis, right in the actual curse as a result of the fall, as God is speaking to the woman, He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
I'm sorry, this is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the earliest days of the church, the theologians of the church have called this the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. Who is the offspring of Eve spoken of here? that will bruise the head of the serpent or crush the head of the serpent. It's Jesus. Eve's great, 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 grandson. There's a couple more greats in there. Jesus is the one who will do this. Jesus is the one who will fulfill this prophecy in the form of a curse against the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Did Satan bruise the heel of Jesus? Certainly. He had to suffer. He had to die. But in that death, and in the resurrection that followed, he crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed Satan. He crippled him. He dealt the fatal blow. When we go back to Romans chapter 5, a little later in the chapter, verses 17 through 19, it says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Praise God. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's what Jesus does for us. Because we don't have just one representational head, we have two. We have Adam And we have the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus is the one person who lived without sin. Jesus is the one person who wasn't bent away from God. Jesus is the one that was able to be offered as a sacrifice for all of the sin of all humanity. Is that fair? Maybe not. But it's good. Is it fair that Jesus had to suffer for all of our sins? No. But he did it because he loves you. He did it because he loves me. He did it because he wanted to save us. And so God himself enters into humanity and becomes the one representational head that can defeat the curse of Adam and bring us back into relationship with him. God is the one being that could do it. The one person who could do it. And so he takes on human flesh. He dies as a sacrifice for sin. He rises to life, conquering death forever. So that he could win us back. And this is available. This life is available as a free gift to all who put their faith, their trust in Jesus.
When Christ comes into our life, he frees our will and we're finally able not to sin. But we still face temptations and we still give in to these temptations. So going back to Augustine, he said, Adam and Eve, they were able to sin and able not to sin. Then he says, after the fall, we are not able not to sin. It's a double negative. Not able not to sin. It means we're bound. We can't help ourselves. But then Jesus comes, and we go back to that first state, able not to sin. And also able to sin. We still sin in our lives. Things haven't been perfectly rosy and peachy since we came to faith in Jesus. And a lot of that has to do with the sin that still lingers in us. What some theologians call the old Adam, or the old man. We still have a nature that's bent away from God, but Jesus is healing us, bit by bit and step by step. He's sanctifying us by his Holy Spirit, drawing us more and more into his image. making us more and more like him. And all of this is pointing towards a final culmination where we will finally be not able to sin. Doesn't that sound awesome? We'll finally be not able to sin. Complete reverse of where we were after the fall. Not able not to sin gets turned into not able to sin. Praise God. Hallelujah. When Christ comes into our life, he frees our will, and we are finally able not to sin. And so we await that final glory, where everything will be set right, and we will finally be able not to sin. Satan and his demons and all who have decided to follow themselves instead of God will be bound up and cast into the lake of fire. We see that in Revelations chapter 20. And then finally in 21... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's awesome. A new heaven and a new earth. He's renewing the whole creation. He's fixing it all. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Think about that for a moment. In this passage, we see all of the effects of the fall reversed. Everything that got done in chapter 3 of Genesis gets undone in chapter 21 of Revelation with this new heaven and this new earth. There's no more death. Death was the result of sin. Tears and crying and sorrow, the result of sin. There's no more sin. But most remarkable, the dwelling place of God is with man, just like it was in the garden, just like it was in the beginning. 
God is renewing his creation. God is renewing you. God is renewing me. He's drawing us further and further into himself. And we await that final day when we are not able to sin. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, for the former things have passed away. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your creation, and we thank you for your recreation. We thank you for the way that you are renewing the face of the world even now. We pray that you would renew us and refresh us by your Holy Spirit. That you would free us more and more from our bent nature, our sinful nature. That we would turn away from the sin in our lives and more and more embrace you and your way. Help us to cast aside our assertion that we know good and evil. And help us to learn the difference between good and evil from you. We thank you that you are on the throne. We thank you that you are in charge. We thank you for your glory. And we wait with excitement for the culmination, the fulfillment of your kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.